When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is author Scott Carney. You might know some of Scott's work with What Doesn't Kill Us in 2017 and his latest book, The Wedge, which really is talking about building resilience every day and, um, you know, unlocking our, our potential and resilience. And so I really was interested in talking to Scott about the things he's learned and how he's applied all of this into his real everyday life. Because I feel like we can investigate things and talk about them and know about them, but then it's like, yeah, but how do we practice them? And Scott was incredibly open, talked about some things that him and his wife shared and techniques they used um, to enhance the relationship even more. And he even shared how he uh, ended up giving up video games and under what circumstances. So I hope you enjoy the show. Scott was informative, fun, engaging, and really honest. First of all, just because I am curious personally, how is your staying at home going? You know, it's funny. It's not funny. The strange thing is, is it's been pretty easy for me. I work from home anyway. I've got a pretty nice setup here. I'm just getting a lot of work done. I miss seeing friends, but I feel like it's been very productive time and I'm sort of adapting to the new world order. I can't wait for it to end though. I really want to start traveling again. You're at home with your wife and wait, you have animals, right? I have two cats. Yeah, well, Portia and Ichabod. Or is your wife a cat person and you're just along for the ride? No, I'm a cat person. Yeah, but like born and bred since childhood. Like, I don't know, dogs, dogs are great. Dogs are cool. There's like 50 dogs on my street. I'm the only person with cats. But my cats have like the best life ever because they're indoor, outdoor. They just sort sort of take over the street and all the dogs have to like spend most of their day inside. So I, and I feel pretty happy with cats. 
So I want to, you know, of your four books, your last two, I mean, obviously really familiar with, Mm -hmm. but I'm interested first on how you kind of arrived at the wedge. Mm -hmm. And I know that what doesn't kill you led to the wedge. You know, maybe you could even just, because I I really want to get it the specifics of the wedge and, and just some other things, but just how your journey as a writer, mm-hmm. like how things led you from one to the next. I, I think uh, it's an interesting process. Sure. I mean, the way I usually describe how this all started for me actually was back in 2005. Before I was really even a, like a full-time journalist, I was actually dropping out of my PhD program in anthropology where I was you know, just about to get my dissertation underway. And I had taken a, a summer to lead an abroad program for American college students throughout North India. And, you know, we were going to all the holy sites. We're going to Varanasi, we're in Delhi, and we ended up in Bodh Gaya for a a seven-day silent meditation retreat. And, you know, this was in the Tibetan tradition. It was was totally quiet. I had about 12 students under my care. But for the meditation retreat, I was not the teacher of the meditation. I was just sort of like taking the classes from this Tibetan nun. But on the last day of the retreat, my best student, a woman named Emily O'Connor, who has like this huge background in yoga, had been meditating for years. She gets the best grades and it's the easiest for her? She's sort of like the, you know, like very driven in the way and like very together in the way no one else was, you know, like she just was the most mature, most poised, you know, the person you didn't worry about. We had people we worried about. She was not the one we worried about. That maybe was an error because on the last day of the retreat, after we've been talking about nirvana, talking about bliss, talking about all the benefits of meditation, on the last day of the retreat, she climbs up to the roof of the retreat center and jumps to her death, killing herself in this horrible moment. And, and she land, her body lands about five feet from where I'm sleeping. I'm, I'm like 20 seven, I guess at this point, maybe 26 years old at this point. And all of a sudden I'm responsible for bringing her body back to America. I'm the only person who speaks Hindi in this group. And I read her journal and, you know, sort of part of the investigation. Say you spoke Hindi? I speak Hindi. Yeah. And when did you pick that up? So yeah, the the real backstory is I lived in India for about, at this point, three years before I this happened. And you know, I had been living and working in India since I was about 18 or 19, you know, sort of a college abroad. And then I sort of bumped around. But yeah, I, I speak Hindi. And it's not very useful these days. But back then it was very, very useful. But on the last day of the retreat, I went into the, her journal and it said, I am a bodhisattva. And essentially it said, all I have to do is leave my body to attain enlightenment, to attain that next level. So she had gotten this in her head that after meditating on bliss and nirvana, that she wanted to stay in that place forever. And it was sort of madness. She, she ended up taking her own life in order to become enlightened. Now, this was like the pivotal moment in my life. It's the first time I was ever near a traumatic death. It was the, you know, I'm, I'm trying to preserve her body in the Indian heat. It's 120 degrees there. It's a horrible thing. And I have to bring her body from this bandit infested area of India all the way back to Delhi and then from Delhi back to the United States. This moment led me to my first book, which is called The Red Market, which is about organ trafficking. Because while we were, while I had her, her body with me, people were fighting over her body parts. People were like, the police wanted parts of it. The insurance insurance company was going to make money off moving the body. And like, there was all this like sort of tug of war over a corpse, which I'd never experienced before. And I never quite realized what happens to your body after you die. Like right now it's mine. But at that point, it's like, who the states, the polices, your program directors on this, you know, there's a lot of people really interested and have interests in that corpse. And then, you know, because I was also living in India at that time, 
I moved down to Chennai, which is a southern part of India, and uh, a village next door to where I lived, 70 women all sold their kidneys. And I was one of the first reporters to be there. And so like all of the, like these two events sort of like bonded and that led me down to a five-year path of like investigating organ markets around the world. You know, at first I realized that her body, Emily's body became a commodity, <laughs> you know? And then I was like, oh look, all of these other ways that bodies became commodities. The red market really sort of established me as a very serious journalist. I was on NPR and National Geographic and you know, all, you know, uh, wired for, for many years, sort of covering the organ trafficking. What was your trajectory in your mind if all of this hadn't happened? In what way were you going to use this education? Mm. What did you think at least you were going to be doing? Well, you know, at that point, I was sort of in the process of dropping out of anthropology. So my whole life was in sort of a big shift. Probably like the month before I led this program, I was like, yeah, I think I'm done. Because I was, you know, looking forward to anthropology. It's like you spend seven years of your life writing a book, right? And, and it's like a really narrow topic. Like it's like, you know, 19th century print culture in India, you know, something really like super narrow. And seven people are going to read your PhD and they are going to judge you completely. They own your life. Whereas if I'm a journalist, I can ask similar questions, hopefully not about print capital, hopefully about more interesting questions, but like I can use the same lens to talk about bigger issues. So I had already written a few minor articles for like, so like local magazines and, and, and stuff. So I was already sort of on the trajectory of changing my job, but I hadn't like sort of fully made the switch. This was sort of in that liminal state between, am I an academic? Am I a writer? And then when she died, I sort of realized this was the thing that made me switch. And then, you know, the, the organ trafficking happened and the organ trafficking book happened. But that whole time I was also thinking about why she killed herself, like not just about her body, but what was going on in her mind. Probably three or four months traveling around to different like gurus and monks and like high up lamas in Tibet and in India, asking them, was she enlightened? You know, you know I'm not the expert on enlightenment. I'm just a dude right, who has a little bit of knowledge, but not that much. But I wanted to ask people in the tradition what they thought. And they were like, no, she was mad. She had gotten so sort of caught up in this idea of enlightenment, this idea of perfection, that she sort of took a wrong turn. Where I was after this is I was trying to understand how this madness is intrinsic in, in spirituality. Like, to, you probably know people like this, right? People who are like super into yoga and maybe a really healthy lifestyle, but they say some really bat shit crazy stuff right? <laughs> and, you know, you, you like say like, oh, I had a really bad day today. I got in a fight with my husband or my, you know, my, my kid or whatever. And they're like, well, you know, Mercury's in retrograde as if that explains everything. Incidentally, it doesn't. <laughs> and, and so the next book was me like looking at all of the ways that people go mad on the meditative and spiritual path. Well, I think, let me ask you like, because in a way there's a part of, at least from what little I know about you, where you do have a way of, it's interesting where you're going to explore all this stuff, but then you're also putting everything in its place. Do you think, because in a way those two things are like a little bit in paradox and have this interesting tension where it's like, I'm going to dive deep into things that are unexplainable and then try to explain and put them in, in their place. Do you think that that's also, because I have my own versions of this, but do you think that's also something of you trying to bridge more of the analytical side of yourself, the curious side with also connecting with what are you feeling and mm -hmm. what are you messiness of, of like the being a human? Because by nature, I feel that you're not like, well, let's just let go and let's dive into these, you know, like 
my feelings and all of these things. So it's an interesting thing where I, when I see some of your work or visit with you, it's like also simultaneously somebody who's also trying to pull these two worlds a little more mm-hmm. together, if you will. And it, some of it's obviously hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like there's always this tension is because, you know, I don't believe in objectivity. I don't think that it's possible, at least not in the social sciences, like maybe in mathematics and physics, there's objectivity, but you know, it doesn't matter what article you read. There's a reporter in the room, you know, affecting the situation. And I think it's really important to realize that I have limitations as a person, just like the people I write about also have limitations. And, you know, oftentimes I'm writing about flawed people, but I have to also accept that I'm a flawed person. I get things wrong. Like there, even in published books, I get things wrong and I'm like, okay, we're going to sort of you know, we're going to continue correcting the, the, the record as we go, because if we don't accept that we are fallible, that we have our own perspective, then we can't really be honest with what we're, you know, oftentimes people want to be like the expert and like know everything and we don't. And I think that the anthropological training I have is very important in this because there was a point in the 50s when anthropologists were like, you know, the Inuit are like this, right? And and the Italians are like that. And they had this like very like formal it was called like functionalism. It was like, it was like a very sort of like everything, there's an objective truth. And then in the 70s and 80s, anthropology sort of went through this subjective change where they're like, actually, that's total bullshit. Like people are, are, are hugely variable and, and culture is a force, but there's also the individual coming to it. And I think I bring that perspective into my work at the same time, trying to be like, well, let's get the bigger context. Let's talk about history. Let's talk about how it all fits together. And my books, I think, are all sort of imperfect because I'm doing my best to bring to the world what I'm seeing, but knowing that there's still always going to be more to talk about. And that's sort of the fun of being a writer, too, is that you can still sort of delve in and chew on this stuff. And it still gives material for other writers to follow up on, you know. I was going to say, does it ever make you feel vulnerable sometimes? Because eventually, you know, you have the deadline, you got to put the book out. And you kind of have to at least go with mm-hmm. what's coming out of you at that moment. Does that ever make you feel vulnerable? And a lot of us aren't comfortable putting things out there knowing there's, you know, there's openings, there's places people can come in and be like, you're wrong. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Aren't we all scared of that? You're like at some point, like of, of being like told that we're an idiot. Like, so here, let me give you an example of, like that's personal and it's like rolling around the internet with me right now. Okay. So, so I put out What Doesn't Kill Us, which was my, my book about, you know, uh, you and Laird are in it and Wim Hof. And there's like, we know that there's this athletic boost that comes with the Wim Hof breathing where you hyperventilate, you hold your breath, and then you can do like more push-ups than you can normally do. All right. I did 80, 80 on like a bunch of breaths and then exhaling and then doing it. So I, I've done 80. I've done that multiple times. And then at some point, Wim Hof was talking to Joe Rogan and Wim was like, yeah, Scott did 80, 80 push-ups. I don't think this is, was really a big controversy. And then Joe Rogan was like, I want to see him do a video of that, right? And I'm like, and, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> I've done this myself multiple times, but if I do a video about it, it's not suddenly about the experience of me doing the push-ups. It's about, I wonder if his push-ups were good enough. You know, it's like, it's like are these like, would, would these stand up to the special forces? Like, and no, they wouldn't. I promise you, my push-ups are not like the most amazing push-ups in the world, but they're mine. And, and the point was that I like tripled the amount that I could do normally. And that was the, the highlight. But I realized if I put this out there in that way, what's going to happen is like, 
Reddit's our fitness team is going to get involved. And then you're going to have, I mean, I'm sure that you've probably had some element of this at some point in your life. And Laird has had some element of this. And, and it's like, people will try to undercut you for things that are not what you set out to do. And I think that's really what the problem is on the world. It's like, if you go out saying, look, I might be wrong on some things, but I'm going to put my best effort forward. And I'm going to give you my honest best. People should be able to accept that without coming in and be like, well, <laughs> you don't understand something that you didn't even consider or even want to do. Like, it's not like, your book was about something else. So I, I totally agree. I just think a lot of people, you know, what I'm always interested in is why people will say, hey, this is scary and I'm going to fail a little within the delivery of the success. Right. And no willing to do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm always interested in what people's mentality is in that they know this going in. It's mm -hmm. one thing when you don't know going in, but when you write a book and if you're honest with yourself, Pretty much, this is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. you know, you're willing to do it anyway, I think is important because that most people are afraid. You know, there's a lot of fear, and especially in a world where there's such overt criticism. Yeah. Before you criticized in the newspaper or on the TV, mm -hmm. now, like, every, you can get criticized, you know, while you're sleeping and it's rolling. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> it's so true. It makes it more scary. You just have to understand how you feel about it. So you can, you'll do it anyway. Right. And I think that's really what it is. You can't move with it, how you feel on a Wednesday versus a Thursday. It's like, you have to pre-decide, how do I feel about this? Yeah, this is part of the deal. Okay, I'm still going to do it. Right. So the experience of what doesn't kill you, you lost, you know, you do the push-ups, you go up in the mountain with no clothes on or, you know, in your shorts, you lose seven pounds, I believe, what'd you say of like, you know, body fat or brown fat or fat. And that experience at least gets you asking more about, correct me if I'm wrong, like when you talked about the wedge, you're sort of saying this is the space in between, you know, the tension or the, you know, discomfort or however you define it. And then like, what is that? Like, a, and again, I'm not going to speak for you, like blissful surrender. I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. how would you, what are you saying is that space, the wedge is in between what two spaces? Yeah. So the wedge is, it's that place between the stress, the thing coming in from the outside, whatever that is, that hard fact of reality and your body's response. And, you know, you know, you guys are big about ice baths. <laughs> you guys are ice bath champions over at XPT. And you know that when you jump into that ice bath, it's better to relax right? And the wedge is that decision to relax. Because I don't know about you, but whenever I, and I've been doing ice baths for 10 years now, ish. I look at an ice bath and I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to do that. Even now, right? Even now I'm like, no, 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 no. I do not want to go into that. And then you, you say, the first wedge is, okay, I'm going to do it. I, I have some experience here and it's not so bad. So the first wedge comes after you say, I'm not doing that. The, the impulse. Is that what you're saying? Well, or the first fact that you're there to do it. <laughs> right. Well, there's wedges everywhere. Anytime we're up against a stress, there is a wedge. It doesn't matter what the stress is. It could be an emotional stress, a physical stress. But I think with an ice bath, even the concept of an ice bath brings up like the shivering, tensing horror story in your mind, right? <laughs> and, and so the first wedge with an ice bath is just the belief that it exists. And for you, you have one, I think there's one about 80 feet from where you're sitting right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have an ongoing joke that everyone's like, Laird, you know, he's amazing. How many years he can output? I'm like, he's amazing. I have to live with him. 
want to survive this. Okay. You, you know, on a related note, in the wedge, most of the time I'm with my wife and I'm bringing her through all of the stuff that I'm doing. So I do, you know, the ice bath stuff with her. I do kettlebell throwing. I do all this stuff with her. And she's with me the whole time. And in truth, the hero of the book is not me. The hero of the book is Laura for coming along. And it's also really interesting to see that we have different experiences in different stresses, right? Like, for instance, we did the potato hack where we just eat potatoes for a week and we're trying to like understand how our senses respond to being a very boring diet. And for me, I'm okay with it. I can sort of handle this and I, I think it's sort of interesting. I sort of meditate through it. You're like, hey, I'm going to check this out and write about it. And I'm a curious guy. And guess what? You're along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Now, wait, on that, were you guys doing like resistance starch? Like, what were you, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Is that what you were researching on? Yeah. I mean, there's the potato hack is, is, is pretty interesting. It's basically you just eat potatoes, nothing but potatoes. So help you God. It's like no oil, no French fries, just potatoes. You can put a little salt, just like a pinch. That's okay. In the time that you're doing that, <laughs> don't like underestimate the power of just a little salt. Yeah. So the reason I did it is because it's this wedge concept. I'm trying to put myself and give myself sensations, put myself in a difficult environment. But, but also I didn't want to do a pure fast because one, I think I didn't want to train people to be better anorexics, which I could have done. Right. And I also wanted to see a fast without hunger right? What is it just that sensation of taste that's out there, how taste frames the world, not necessarily that, that deep desire to eat that we have. So potatoes are really interesting because they are the most satiating food on the planet. There's an index out there showing that they are like of any one thing you can eat, the potato fills you up more than anything else. And it also does this resistant starch stuff, which helps reset your gut and all that stuff. I wasn't too interested in that. I write about that. But the reason I did it was to understand how my palate changes while I'm eating just potatoes. And so, but I, so we get through this. It's only three or four days of just eating potatoes. And I'm like, fine, I could probably do another couple of weeks of this. And Laura is like on edge, like climbing up walls, being like, hell no. <laughs> now, what is it in you? Because I'm curious, and Laird and I have this too, where he... Like he can say, we're fasting and he just, that's the decision and we're doing it. And I'm much more, and weirdly, like, I never think I'm an emotional person and somehow I'm just more emotional during these. Mm -hmm. What is it that you go like, oh, I'm going to observe this and notice and take notes, but somehow it's not driven by your personal feelings or response. Is that just natural or do you just click gears or what is that? Yeah, I, don't, I think for my whole life, I've been someone who can deal with sort of just a, a routine. For like a three-year period of my life, I ate the same breakfast every day. It was like an egg with an English muffin and some cheese. Like that was like, and that was three or four years of just doing that. And I was fine. And I think other people are out there being like, that's insanity. Like I need to change every single day. And maybe it's, that could just be the way I'm wired, which is again, why this book is interesting because then we have Laura's perspective and she goes into the same thing and, and she has a different response. We still get something out of it. But the thing is, is we get something different. And so the way I look at the wedge is it's not the book, I mean, is it's not like these 10, do these 10 things and come out super awesome, right? It's not like the, the, a recipe book. What it is, it's a way to think about stress in the world and then to chart your own path. Because this is, I can only show you my path and here's the 10 things I did. And they may work for you. A lot of other things will work for you too. And you may find that, you know, you like one thing and it gets so much, fulfills you, it engages your emotions and your physique in a way that for me, I would be like, 
you know, biting my nails. Like for instance, I've been to your house. I've seen your gym downstairs, right? And it's like a state-of-the-art gym and, you know, all of these super awesome devices with weights and whatever. And for me, that's cringeworthy. Like the thought of being in a gym for more than a glance is terrifying to me. It's not terrifying. It's like, it's like, why would I do that? However, I can go on a bike ride that will last four or five hours and be totally engaged and super happy. And it's about finding the thing that speaks to you. It's not that gyms are bad, right? Gyms are great for somebody. But for me, they don't speak. And it's finding that thing that works. Hi, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods. Public Goods is an amazing company. It's a one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. I don't get to say often affordable and sustainable in the same sentence, and it's all in one place. So rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Good members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. I personally have been using the laundry detergent and some of the house cleaning products. I love the way it looks. I love the way it smells. And the confidence I have in knowing that what I'm spraying on my countertops and putting in my clothing laundry is non-toxic and it's eco-friendly. They search the globe to find healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoos. And I love this, tree-free paper products. So toilet papers, tissues, things like that. They ethically source and they're obsessed with developing each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives, still common in all the stores that you and I shop in, grocery stores and drugstores. And they're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. I know we're all trying to figure out ways to make small changes that can have a deep and big impact, not only on our personal health, but on the world's health and the world at large that we live on. So they use a membership model to keep costs low. That's how they do it and pass on even more savings to their customers. And best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. The other thing that they do that I really appreciate is they plant one tree for every order placed and they've planted over 100,000 trees since September, 2019. Of course, they're gonna give the Gabby Reese listeners a promo and today you can receive $15, that's $15 off your first public goods orders with no minimum. So what does that mean? That means you could actually go there and spend the $15 and not spend any money just to try it out. So they're so confident that you're absolutely going to love their products that you'll come back again and again. And they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You've got nothing to lose. So just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Gabby or use the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout. So remember, Public Goods, P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Gabby to receive your $15 off your first order. I know you're going to love it. What keeps coming up from the book or what, you know, now forgive me if I get this wrong. I Did you guys go on a journey together prior to starting this book? I remember I read something. This was a, a month or two ago whether it was ayahuasca or mushrooms or something, because mm-hmm. I personally grew up in a way where I was surrounded by people who, especially when I moved back, to, when I moved to the Caribbean, that were, there was a, there was sort of a looseness mm-hmm. that I then got pretty, I kind of got on a track because I, I feel like sometimes when the adults around us are too stiff in a track, we get loose to mm-hmm. balance. Mm-hmm. Like I joke with Larry all the time, like we needed to like drink and drive and stuff. And like, so our kids right. would just be like buttoned up and straight ahead. <laughs> 
And then obviously in my adult life and learning more about mushrooms and certain things that guided journeys and things that are, you know, there's some, even for me, like this notion of a framework or a purpose, this is like a confession, but the idea of like just doing something to do it for me, that's unnerving to me versus, well, no, but maybe you can heal certain childhood traumas or certain obstacles that you can't seem to talk out, Mm -hmm. therapy out. Right. And it still has bumpers, right? Like that part was that sort of, as I've gotten older, I'm like, okay, I can really look at that. Right. And also understanding that certain psychedelics were misused in the sixties mm-hmm. based on dosage versus not, Hey, a little bit with maybe somebody talking to you. Right. Could be liberating. So yeah. I was fascinated about that. If you wouldn't mind. Sure. Yeah. So, so the first question was whether I had done a journey, and I think you mean the psychedelic journey with Laura before. Yeah. And why did you do it? So we've been married about five years. And yeah, when we first got together, we did sort of like recreationally bonding MDMA once, which is ecstasy. And we had a great experience with it because we we were talking and we felt really, you know, when you're on MDMA, you're basically chemically almost unable to have a negative experience while you're on the upswing of MDMA. It It sort of releases oxytocin and all those love chemicals. And, you know, you could you know, basically say anything to the other person and they'll just accept it. They'll gush. And then there's the come down, which can be very bad. Like it's the, the inverse of that. It's like, you know, when you drink, there's euphoria and then there's a hangover, which is the depression that lasts a couple days sometimes. So ecstasy is the same way. You have the up, which is great. And then the down, which can be very bad. And if you're on an SSRI, this should, is important. If you're on an antidepressant that's modulating serotonin, you never, ever, ever do MDMA because that can put you into a, something called serotonin syndrome and you can have a really bad hangover that in some cases can be fatal. So don't do this stuff if you're on, a, on like a Prozac or you know something Zoloft or something similar like that. But so we had a good experience, but then she actually had a really bad come down. And so she had this negative relationship with MDMA after that, which was fine. Where did you get the idea to like bring her along, just have a different perspective simultaneously? So you represented a larger group than just yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the failings of What Doesn't Kill Us, honestly, I think What Doesn't Kill Us is a great book, but the failing is there's not a lot of, uh, it's, it's mostly my perspective and the awesome person I'm talking to's perspective. And there's definitely almost no women in it. I mean, I think you might be the only woman in that book, Gabby, and you don't even get a, a ton of page space in What Doesn't Kill Us. So it's bringing a female person, yeah. in, not a knock, but you're also bringing in Laura sort of as the every person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a representation of somebody who's like just giving it a go. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, obviously she's predisposed to trust me, right? Because we're married. Even so, I mean, she has the option not to do things. And there's some things that we didn't do in the book because she didn't, like some things that I'm on my own, some things that we nixed entirely and something that she came along with me for. So for instance, we didn't want to do a chapter on sex for instance, right? We did, you know, you could do wedges with sex if you wanted to, because there's a sensation, there's a stress, and there's like a, a physical response, right? What does that scenario look like? What are you trying to do, Gabby? <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me, like, I could do a podcast with Neil Strauss, right. and really likes to, and is interested in talking about various dimensions of sex, and mm-hmm. I always felt like a simpleton, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I... And I was always fascinated mm-hmm. by, like, that was normal. Like, I was the one who was so strange for just kind of being like, 
I don't really want to make it complicated. I want to enjoy it. I, mm-hmm. I want to have it on a regular basis, mm-hmm. but I, I don't need to have, you know, like bring in other people and, mm-hmm. um, you know, fly from high above or put shower curtains down or, you know, whatever. we went through it. Right. And <laughs> shower curtains. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> like, the, you know, and so if I was called the householder, right. Uh-huh. And so I'm always fascinated. Like when you say that, it's like, because without bringing in another person, then what do you, you know, you're moving towards, and I know everybody has different inclinations and things like that. So I guess I was just curious on yeah, you would even start to have the idea to go with that with right. your wife. Right. Well, I mean, here's the thing. We didn't go with it because, because, you know, one, one is like, did we want to expose that to the public? And no, the answer was no. We, that's so private. Like, do I think that you could, someone who is predisposed, maybe Neil Strauss wants to write, maybe he already has written it, you know, like, and he's welcome to. It's just that that's not a route that we wanted to go. But I think that there's, you can, you know, you could go to like Tantra or, you know, there's all sorts of different things out there and feel free to explore it. I think that you can, if you read the book, you can be like, oh, I can see how this would fit in, right? And then, oh, I can find a wedge in anything. Uh, you can find a wedge in riding your bicycle. You can find a wedge in skydiving. You can find a wedge in driving your car or sitting in the DMV's line. Like there's all sorts of wedges out there. And that's just one that we just chose not to do. Do you go on the journey before? So, yeah. So the, the, what we did is MDMA has become a, a very interesting chemical in America right now, right? We're talking about how it can be used for to treat PTSD, depression, and what I was interested in is, is how can we use this as a wedge in a relationship? Because in every relationship, there are usually what you are you're doing in the wedge is you're putting yourself up against, in a stressful situation and then you're controlling yourself, right? That's inserting the wedge in the environment. So I, I talk about three places you can insert the wedge. It's the environment, it's your chemical pathways, and it's your like sort of your mindset. So if, if mindset's like, oh, I'm going to have a very positive, like I'm going to jump into an ice bath, but I'm going to say this is going to be a great ice bath, right? And so you sort of psych yourself into it. The environmental side is actually jumping into the ice bath, right? There's the wedge there, right? You're, you're, you're changing your environment. But the chemical pathways is really interesting because what we're doing is we're making it pretty much chemically impossible to have a negative reaction in the high point. Not to say it is impossible, but pretty much impossible. And then we go into a couple's therapy session where the wedge is we're going to talk about difficult stuff in our relationship. And, you know, I'll bet you we did talk about whether or not we should put the sex chapter in the book in this MDMA session. I'll bet, I think I sort of remember that being one of the things we talked about. And then we also brought in two clinical psychologists, like couples counselors. And so they're sitting there and they have done ecstasy in their past, but they've never seen it clinically. And they wanted to see, you know, they're, they're talking about couples who are dealing with infidelity, couples who are dealing on divorce, couples in all sorts of like, you know, sex problems, couples in all sorts of various places. And they just wanted to see how we would respond. And they're going to sort of guide us through the journey. So we started this with the intention of working on our relationship. And then in that moment where we are on MDMA, which makes it really easy to talk about difficult things, we started talking about difficult things. And, and I don't go into all of the things in the book, but let's just posit, for instance, that one of them was, I hate your mother, right? Something that, that should make the other person very angry. Because the usual response to I hate your mother is, well, I hate your mother, right? That's how we, 
That's usually how that conversation goes. But instead, when you're on MDMA, you can be like, I hate your mother. And the person will be like, oh, I understand. Why? Tell me more about that. How can we can fix it? And you sort of go into like automatic um, problem solving. And we did that. And, and, and so you can address really difficult, stressful things from a chemically almost definite um, positive response. So at the end of the session, like the game is rigged in a good way. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've totally rigged it. <laughs> and, and at the end, the psychiatrists are like, oh my God, this was like watching six or eight months of couples therapy happen in just three hours because all of your defenses are down and you're just working on things. And I'm not going to say like that like this was a game changer for our relationship. We already have a strong relationship. But it you know, sort of made things like 10% better. And, and the lessons that we had in those therapy sessions, we then continue forward. And so it's like, it's like really having a really productive conversation with your spouse. And I think the clinical setting was useful because it, even if the, they, be, they didn't guide every question, because at some point you're high on the drug and you're like, I don't want to look at those strange people watching me roll on ecstasy, right? <laughs> but, but just their presence sort of keeps you honest. And yeah, so it was, it was, I mean, it was a really good and interesting experience. And so that's, Laura in general does not like doing psychedelics or doing drugs and that's fine. But, you know, she came with me for this part of the journey. But that is very appealing. And like I said, in my own ways, I, I freely admit my linear approach because again, it was a, a response. Maybe it's part of my natural personality, but it was also a response to the way I grew up where there was not a lot of safety net. So it was like, okay, this is going to work better to survive. So I am intrigued by it because when you come out of that and like you said, okay, 10% different, or you heard things, when you come out of that and you're back to whatever version of yourself without any stimulants or, you know, chemicals, Mm -hmm. can you still hear or remember, recall that Mm -hmm. information in a, in a non-defensive, non-egotistical way? Yeah. Actually, and this is the amazing thing about it, is that when you initially have an experience, it doesn't matter what experience it is. And this is a whole thing about neurology in the book where I talk about neural symbols. And we won't get into the whole back and forth about that of how it wires. But essentially, whenever you first experience something, you wire that into your current emotional state. While, you know, it doesn't matter what you experience, it, it's the sensation of that event plus your current emotional state. And that gets wired into your brain and sort of stays there in sort of a library in your brain. So, so that the next time you try to reaccess that information, you, you, you're not only reacting the sensations, so that the, in this case it would be the discussion with Laura, but you're also reaccessing the emotional state at the time that you encoded that. So when I, am, uh, when I look back at those conversations, it's not like I get high. It's not like, oh, I'm on ecstasy again. But you remember it, in the context in which you receive the information at that time. Uh, so, so it, you know, it's chemically induced, but it also carries forward into the future because you've had, you've completely processed that experience while on ecstasy. Um, and which is also why it's really important to be in a guided situation because should you be on a psychedelic that where you're not sure where it can go, like mushrooms, or ayahuasca, which I also do in the book, you can have a really negative experience. You can have like the worst experience of your life on a psychedelic. I have had that. I actually went to the hospital on a psychedelic in college. You're in college. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, true. Right. So maybe that was the advantage. Was one like the ayahuasca journey in the book uh, versus um, the MDMA was one more sort of positive or beneficial for you personally? 
I think the ayahuasca trip for me was more beneficial than the um, MDMA trip only because the problem, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a relationship issue with my wife, which we don't really have like huge, like we're not on the verge of divorce or anything. So that was, um, whereas the ayahuasca one, it showed me something that I didn't expect that I sort of knew was a problem, but that, um, that it's sort of like put into exact focus. And then like it sorted it out for me instantaneously. And I can give you the, the, tri the description of this is that, so I went to Peru and how I found the shaman was crazy. Um, it involves a dream where she actually comes to me in the dream after I've been searching for a shaman for like six months and be like, oh, I guess I'm never going to find anyone. And so like, I dreamed her into my life. Super strange. But anyway, I get to Peru and uh, we're in the jungle. We are in like right outside of Iquitos in the middle of the Amazon. Just picture this big leafy foliage, big trees and jaguars everywhere. Just like anywhere there's a jaguar, right? <laughs> and, and I get off the plane and the guy who's running it um, is a guy named Tony, who's actually the teacher of the person I dreamed about. Long story, read the book. Um, and, and he says, okay, come into the jungle. We're going to do the, the retreat right now. We're going to do ayahuasca within like four hours of landing in Peru, which is sort of intense. My intentions here are that I want to get blasted out into the universe. I want to be like connecting with God. I want to be like the big, the big thing, right? You know, I want to, I want to be one with everything. Uh, and that's my like stated intention. And so we go into the, 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 the hut where this is going to happen. And this is like way deep in the jungle, probably starts at 11 PM pitch dark, you know, uh, get into the room and there's like six or no, there's probably 10 people in the room and the shaman comes in and he starts like singing a song and, and, and it's like sort of like nursery rhymey and weird. And, and I'm realizing that the wedge here is not just the ayahuasca that we're going to take. It's, the entire situation, the entire remoteness, the entire strangeness of this, this place. And, uh, you know, everyone drinks it. I drink it. And, and ayahuasca tastes really bad. Have you tried it? Have you ever? You haven't. I'm moving into this other chapter of my life, and maybe it's waiting for my kids to be bigger or something. I don't know. I'd probably be a better parent if I did some of this stuff sooner than later. But, uh, yeah, again, I've been holding on to a version of structure or control and obviously loosening the reins, I've gotten it beaten out of me a little through mm -hmm. parenting. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work, but not yet. So go ahead. So, so, so I drink it and it is the worst taste in the world. Like it is like rotten fruit plus coffee plus in the consistency of motor oil. Okay. So it's horrendous. And it sort of slicks down my throat and I'm like, Oh God, this is terrible. And then you, you go, I go sit back and I wait for the, the, it to come on. And all the while the shaman is like, drumming and singing his songs. And what actually happens is, so ayahuasca, often it, you experience it as like something external talking to you. It's like, it's like, it's in your brain and maybe it's just your subconscious. But if you talk to the shamans, they're like, this is the spirit of the plant. This is the, this is like God talking to you. So ayahuasca comes over and starts telling me how lame I am. Like, it's like, Scott, you know, you do all these cool things and, you know, there's some really cool things that you, but you have this serious addiction and you are lame. And Gabby, this is incredibly embarrassing for me to even talk to you and tell you about my thing. Don't you think in a way that that is what the whole thing is about? Yes. Yeah. Like, it's real strength in, let me tell you the worst thing I'm, I've been thinking or feeling or gone through. Totally. Totally. 
Uh, it is. And, and and it's good to have this, this conversation with this, this like ayahuasca therapist who's in your brain. Um, so it, it, it talks to me as like, so, Scott, you do these cool things. You do these books, you have these adventures, you have a really interesting life, blah, blah, blah. So it, so it actually starts with a compliment, which is very nice of it. Right. And then, and then it's like, but you have been playing video games your whole life, video games. Like, and it's like, you have spent a way too many hours, like several books worth of hours playing video games. And it, and it, and it told me why I, I played it because, and, and it was like, you play it because it gives you the sense of accomplishment. You know, you do something and, and it fills this gap in your life, you know, cause I, you know, while I do really cool stuff, I also have like a lot of free time. So there's this, this tension between high intensity and low intensity, and that gets filled with video games. And it basically tells me how lame I am for playing too many video games. And honestly, to tell you this, I, I know how like you and Laird's life, to me, your, the way your life appears, and this is actually maybe not how it is, but your life appears like very well put together, right? Very, very, um, you know, fulfilled and, 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 and sort of like always getting to the next thing. So I feel like video games for me are like super lame. <laughs> and, and, then, and then after it tells me all of this, then I have this experience where you have to vomit. And so then, and then you vomit on, on, on ayahuasca. Most people do. And it tastes even worse coming up. And at the end of it, after eight hours of this tripping on video games and, and, and ayahuasca, um, I, I come out and I'm like, wow, that was lame. I didn't get to talk to the universe. Like it was like, all it did was lecture me about my stupid addiction and told me about how this worked. And then, so, so then I, um, I'm like, well, next time, because I'm here for 10 days, right? Next time, I'm going to go deep. And maybe I won't have to deal with video games. And so I brew the ayahuasca. I, brewing ayahuasca is hard to do. You have to go cut the vines. You have to bash them apart with like hammers. And you have to go find these leaves called chakruna leaves in the jungle. And I, I spend like 18 hours brewing this potion. Okay. And, there, and the, the pictures are actually really cool. So you can look at my Instagram. You see the pictures of me brewing it. With your experience. Yeah. So you Redo. Yeah, I'm, I'm redoing it. And this time I'm going to blow my best intentions into the universe. So you smoke tobacco and you blow the tobacco into the ayahuasca brew. And there's all this, like, there's singing, there's all sorts of stuff going into it. And I'm going to go big because this time I'm going to go to the universe, right? And then I go back at, you know, and then the day comes, it's like three days later. And I've, and this time I've like written down my thoughts about ayahuasca. Like I write, write all this long screed about my video game addiction and whatever else. And then so the next time I'm like, now we're going to go big. And Tony, the shaman says, Scott, this one is a bomb. That's like, it's going to be really big. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to get a bomb, right? <laughs> and so then I sit, we're, we're sitting in the same shamanic place three days later. He's beating his drum. I drink the motor oil and I'm sitting there and, I, and I'm like, okay, we're going to go big. And I sit there and nothing happens, Gabby. I'm sitting there and it's just, it's just a guy with a drum and I've drank this noxious brew and it's like, no visions, no, no, no blasting into the universe. I'm just bored. I'm just bored. And, and I'm like, oh, great. And so after about like two hours of sitting there, just thinking about nothing, like, why is this shaman guy singing to me? I feel that purge coming up. It's like the roiling in my stomach. And honestly, ayahuasca tastes much worse coming up than going down. You might figure. Um, and I'm like, oh no, I have to do this. So I grab my dirty bucket and I, and I, and I sit over it and it's, it's coming up. And then I vomit out video games. Video games sploosh into the bottom of this bucket. And, and I'm like, oh, 
that's weird. I mean, it's not like Mario Brothers comes out of my mouth, but it's like, it is that the physical manifestation of video games. And I'm like, wow, that was lame in some ways, but also like amazing. I was like, totally my, I didn't see the God, but I, but this addiction thing is gone. And, um, and then uh, we do the, another ceremony three days later and I go out and I see the universe and it's all great. And you know, it's really cool. Yeah, I do. I do see the universe. But the, the important takeaway actually is that then for like, let's see, when did I do that? Two and a half years ago. Um, who cares about video games? It's gone. It's like, and actually I didn't play any video games until um, COVID. And then I turned them on to see like, well, you know, one, I'm launching the book. So I want to see, is that addiction there? And so I played a little bit and I'm like, they're okay, but, but they're not great. Like they, don't, they don't actually speak to the same part of whatever it is that was there before. And so somehow ayahuasca didn't only lecture me, it also found the physical thing in me and I vomited that out. So it was amazing. Did you, did you have to re replace it? Like, did you notice if you, you added on into your life something that maybe, um, I don't want to say took the place because maybe that part of you is gone forever, which is probably okay. Mm. Um, or that part, you know, the part that was addicted. Did you put something else uh, in lieu of the game? Yeah. So I, um, one thing that I did is I went back to a, a thing that I liked when I was a kid. So I still do recreational games, right? But I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know if you've heard of this game. It's like a tabletop role-playing game um, where um, you create your own stories, right? And, and it's like actually a very creative endeavor because you basically have to write a book if you're gonna, I'm the, and I'm the dungeon master. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's the guy who does the story. Um, so I, you basically write this whole adventure and then you play with other people and then it's a it's like a mutually creative experience instead of sort of living someone else's fantasy which is what the video games is so i'm still putting that I, I like I, like dungeons and dragons is a much better creative outlet because you're building a skill even if it's not a book and in some ways it's sort of cooler than a book because it doesn't have to have the output that gets national and international recognition that i do with my books it's like this is just for me i do this cuz it's fun and, and, uh, and I find it like translates to a lot of things in my life. And I also, I'm now I'm like doing this other stuff. Like I throw kettlebells and I do some other things that I, I've sort of put into my life. What do you kettlebells with? You know, there's all variations of, of that. Yeah. I actually throw with a couple XPT people here in, um, in Denver. Uh, Eric Hinman is one of my buds. Um, I don't, you may know him. I, I think he's taken your courses. I don't know if he's done it in Malibu. Um, Amy Morrison, who I think, you know, and, uh, and I also, uh, I throw with a guy named Mike Adiala, who's out here. I mean, all of these people are like, I mean, I'm like a normal guy. I, I'm not like super fit, but I'll, I hang out with all these like super fit guys with like, like many more abs than I know how to count. And <laughs> like that it's a little bit dangerous, like the kettlebell part. Like, do you like that the amount of focus that it takes? Like, what do you get? I mean, obviously there's some interesting functional byproduct mm -hmm. and results of that. But what do you sort of go, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. So for me, it's about, um, yeah, the danger is very important, right? It, it's like, you like when you hear throwing kettlebells, you think, well, you're going to break your foot, right? It's like, and I, you do this too sometimes, right? Hasn't like Tony Florial hung out with you and thrown some kettlebells around? Yeah. I, again, I'm in it for the long run. Okay. All these guys, the stuff they do, I go, uh-huh, I'll be over here watching. <laughs> You're very sensible. Um, so, but the thing is that's so cool about kettlebell tossing is, you know, for me, again, a lot of the things on their surface don't 
speak to me. Like kettlebells to me didn't really speak to me until I started throwing them. Because when you're in the moment, um, I, I learned it from a guy named Michael Castro Giovanni, right? He was, who was this, he developed this whole system of throwing kettlebells. And when I first met him, he looks like a gorilla, right? As far as like, if I'm going to describe what this man is, he's a gorilla. His, his arms are as big as my thighs. He's sort of, he's shorter than me and he's like hunched over. His knuckles might as well drag on the ground, right? And, and he, he has a kettlebell in his hand. It's 25 pounds. He's going to throw it at me. And that is scary. And, and I'm worried that I'm going to hurt, get myself hurt. And, and a part of me is also worrying about hurting him. Right. If the bell comes, if I actually manage to catch it and throw it back, I could land on his foot if I throw it badly. And and so he throws it. And the way the kettlebell passing is supposed to start is you start by looking at each other's eyes and you say, are you ready? And you say, yeah, I'm ready. And then and then you, 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 you do three swings. You throw it on the third swing. So the first time you're looking at each other's eyes, you're connecting with each other. The second time when, when, after you've swung it. Um, you, when, it, when it's at its highest point, you switch from eyes to the kettlebell, the thing that's going to break my foot. So I go from the person who's going to hurt me to the thing that's going to hurt me. And then the third time he lets it go, it flips through the air. My butt puckers until it can crush a diamond. And, and I'm like, oh my God, here we are. And then my hands grasp the bell and I just throw it back to him. And instantaneously, because we are both you have to focus on the threat of the kettlebell. Just like in an ice bath, you have to focus on the, on the ice. Like you physically just are compelled to. The, the, we, it goes from being a sort of an aggressive, potentially threatening situation to dancing, where we are now, our movements are coordinated because we're both looking at the same threat that's between us. And, and then I realized that this is not about getting fit. It's not, I mean, it can be, it's not about getting stronger and whatever else. It's about connecting with another human in, in a, in an environment that you've created a potential danger, even though it's not super dangerous, right? But it's potential danger. And then what you're both doing is in that dangerous environment, you're trying to find a way not to hurt the other person and not to get yourself hurt. And so the kettlebell passing is about bonding. It's about trust. It's about all these things that have nothing to do with kettlebells. Uh, and that's why I love it. And, and it's what's really cool is doing it with a, a partner, with, sorry, with your, with your partner, with your spouse or someone like that. Because usually people are terrible at throwing kettlebells with their husband or wife. Because you know you have all these places that you don't want to go to in your relationship, like these little islands. And it's fine. Everyone has these. I don't want to talk about your mother or whatever it is, right? These places that you don't want to go to. And, and there's just subtle um, undermining of trust in every even healthy relationship. So with the kettlebells, usually partners are terrible at first because those trust issues come out immediately. Oh, you're going to break my foot or, oh, I'm going to break your foot, right? There's these like, like these two converse things. And so usually they, they drop it fairly frequently at first. And then over time, you learn a new way to communicate uh, where, where you, you, the movements are easy enough. And then, oh my God, you're now dancing with your partner in, in this environment of, of stress. And it's like therapy, interestingly enough. In a way, like you said, maybe you're rebuilding these small little bridges of trust. Mm -hmm. Through this, you're reverse engineering it. Um, and in this flow way, I know you're very into flow and mm -hmm. flow state. That is a form of, I believe, from especially the way that you explain it, flow state. Do you, do you feel, now that video games are gone, is there something in the, you that feels 
I hate to word to use happy, just different. Like, is there something that's different? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel pretty comfortable taking risks, I think. I think, and I've always been comfortable with taking risks to some degree, but I feel like it's a more comfortable understanding the consequences of risk. And when you do that, you're, a, you're able to take risks more rationally. Like maybe when I was younger, I would take risks that were dumb, right? And then, but you, you have to take risks in your life, right? Because the only way you expand is by pushing up against something and then realizing that you can either go through or you have to pare back because it will hurt you. Um, but you have to come up to that limit at some point to really know what you're capable of. And I feel like since doing these things, I'm able to take risks that are rational, right? That the risks that, that, that things that can put me in a difficult situation where I know that I can fail, right? That I know that I could, that, that, and I, and I embrace catastrophe to some degree. I can be like, look, I throw a kettlebell and I know that I can break a, a, a foot. Like, there's no magic that will stop the kettlebell from breaking my foot. So you have to embrace the fact that you might break your foot. But if you can do that, then you sort of get this, you, you sort of have the skills not to break your foot, if you know what I mean. Like you need to sort of face this. And actually Laird had said something about like similar to this in What Doesn't Kill Us when he talks about going onto big waves, right? He's, you know, look, get, getting on top of like, I'm not a surfer. I wish I were, but I'm, but you know, he gets, comes up on some monster thing. It's like a hundred feet tall or even like for me, four feet tall would be scary. And then he looks down and he says, Oh, you know, I can envision failure. I can envision at any point on this thing, something could go catastrophically wrong, but I know that there's a process to the catastrophe and at every stage, what will I do next? And he's so he always keeps his agency in the moment and that's hugely important. And it doesn't only apply to big waves or throwing kettlebells, it applies to everything in life. It applies to starting a business. It applies to putting a book out. It applies to exactly what we were talking about before, where you're like, well, what about when you put a book out, does, does someone got, and there's something wrong in it, but how do you deal with it? Like, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's like um, one of these underlying, uh, I'm trying not to use the word secret because it's, it, it, it brings up that book, which I actually think that book is wrong, um, but it's an underlying sort of pattern to how um, life can be very fulfilling uh, and how you can achieve the things you want to. And you only do that by embracing the possibility of failure. Do you think that when you do a book like The Wedge, and people obviously, you're never gonna control what people take out of it, right? Like you're gonna have a literal reader who's like, oh, I, I'm gonna try this and see that and try this. And then you're gonna have people who, you know, when things impress upon you and then you interpret it in that sort of internal way and you go, oh, it was talking about eating potatoes or trying things, you know, float tanks. But what I really got from it was, you know, this sort of internal interpretation. If, if you could sort of, you know, you'll go someplace once you get out of quarantine and you'll, you know, meet people who have read your book and, and you'll sign the books and stuff like that. What is the greatest, Again, and I know you're not controlling it, but when you write a book like The Wedge and you've really thoroughly uh, driven down on these experiences, and then you kind of disseminate and go, what I really hope that they get from this mm -hmm. is... I, I want people to understand that they have their own wedges, like that, 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 that this thing underpins, uh, you know, 
to some degree, all of human experience, right? Because you're always going up against stresses, but I want to give them the tool to think about that consciously. Um, and the reason you want to be able to think about it consciously is so that you can also think about it unconsciously. Like you have the choice now to think about this. And that's what I want people to have. I want them to read this book and be like, um, I can decide that I want to put myself and want to insert myself in this moment, or I can decide not to insert myself into this moment. And, and I think that that's a really a, a very important, useful human skill to have, is to know that you have a choice and that you can exercise it if you want to. Because the verses is what people not realizing they have the opportunity or like, what does the, the other look like? Or how, does it, how do you see it showing up in sort of most of our lives? So sort of feeling like you're out of control. Is, is, is the thing. Like, you know, it, it, right now we're all under lockdown, right? We're, we're sort of in a, in a situation where um, we feel like the world is out of control and that a lot of us will take that anxiety into ourselves. for instance, right? Like we'll read a news story and some politician will say something dumb, for instance. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen before. <laughs> some politician says something dumb and then you get really roiled up on the inside. And then you write a, a tweet correcting the president or correcting whoever, right? Um, or, and then, but what does that do, right? Nothing, like, like there's nothing you can do in that world. And, but, but what you're trying to do is, is control the situation. You're trying to be like, look, if I just write the right thing, um, either I will change the mind of, a, of, of another person on Twitter or I will change the, 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 somehow the overall situation. But in truth, you don't actually have any control over that. What you do have control over is how it makes you feel. And you'll realize that there's a wedge there. There is a stress coming in from the outside. Even if it's a virtual stress on the internet, there's something coming in from the outside and then your body reacts. And you, that is where you get to insert yourself. It's not in the Twitter sphere right? It's in your own body. And, and you know, usually what, what will happen is, is, you know, we only have one nervous system and it only has got a couple tricks. It's got parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. It's got fight or flight, which is sympathetic. And there's no like third system there. You can either be in fight or flight or you can be rest and digest or some mixture of the two. And oftentimes the things that make us anxious, actually all of the time, the things that makes us anxious is that sympathetic fight or flight response getting released into our bodies. And, you know, in the, in our ancestors in the, in the sort of like paleo, paleolithic period, you know, the stress was the lion charging at you and you're, and you wanted to get stressed so you could take your spear and ram it into the lion's face or run away. Right. And you needed the energy in the present world. There's no lion, right? There's, there's, there's just, um, there's just a tweet that's not, just talks to you, you feel anxious because you're trying to fight it as if it were a lion, but then there's no outlet and then you feel horrible. What the wedge teaches us and in this and a million other cases is that you have the ability to control that or you can create an outlet. Let's say you're in a Twitter battle right now, for instance, go throw some kettlebells, go jump in an ice bath, go take a cold shower, go do something else that then forces you to contend with something external. And now you're going to have an outlet and that makes you healthier, happier, stronger, better. I mean, this is a, I mean, you guys are doing all this stuff with, exp it's so funny to talk with you because you're, you, you're doing all this stuff already, right? You, like you don't need to read the book. I mean, please buy the book, but. <laughs> I did read the book and I think it's important because I think sometimes, listen, you have all the information, you wrote the 
book and you're still having to exercise a practice. Right. You're still, go, you're still you, the author of the book, mm-hmm. is still having to go, here comes something mm-hmm. that shouldn't but does mm-hmm. be anxious, pissed off, and it's not impacting my safety or well-being. It's not even inside my four walls. Yeah. So what's the choice? What am I going to do to do with it? And I think that this is actually, if you say to me, uh, you're the expert. Yeah. I live in this space quite a bit. And let me tell you, it is a daily practice yes. every day. It's so important. And this is what I really want, you know, or I think is important. So if people can read the book, then they have these going like, oh, I have option A, B, and C. Right. Mm-hmm. And Play, but also to realize we don't arrive. And the guy that's living on top of the mountain at the, you know, the monk that's meditating all day, he's also away. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a part of him that understands intuitively, probably I'm actually going to remove myself from these things that uh, I wouldn't be able to be in this practice. Right. Right. And other level thoughts like, well, how do I contend with my ego and all of this? The, these are luxuries. Mm-hmm. You know, people, that are going to work and trying to pay their bills and deal with their spouse and their children, they have stuff coming at them all the time. And for me to sit here and go, you know, let's talk about fear and you being triggered. It's like, Hey, fuck, I'm trying to pay my bills. Like I can't even get. So I love the idea of like, Hey, here's something that at least gives you a directive resource. Right. You can, and that you as a person who knows are still making choices. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, the idea of a practice and that also the practice gets easier. Yeah. Right. Like you can recognize it quicker. Mm-hmm. You cannot respond sooner mm-hmm. um, or you can have your outlet or whatever you need to do. So I think that's important and not for us to feel shitty that, um, well, why am I not a Zen master? Well, right. we're here. And I also, I don't know how much you've explored, you know, into how much technology is just kicking our ass. Oh God. I, I mean, I just, you know, I see that for my kids and their developing mind, but it's also for people to recognize, and we talk about all the time, it's a slot machine, it's all these things. But if we don't think it's kicking our ass in a real way, mm-hmm. um, and then how we want to put a system in place to manage it, mm-hmm. uh, we're delusional. Yeah. There was, um, so I was speaking with Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist over at Stanford uh, recently, and he has this paper that's just about to come out. Um, I, I, it's, it's in sort of like the pre-press stages, but he said, I can talk about it as long as I don't give data, which is fine. Cause I don't really understand all the data. Um, so he, he is, he studies the eyeball and the way the optic nerve sends information from the outside world into your brain. And it evolved with, let's use our lion example, right? Lions a mile away. You look at that lion and your eyeballs, um, the, the lens is at a certain focal length and it's, it, it's a long focal length because the lion's far away. So that just the movement of the, the lens uh, connects to your body and, and gives you a, um, it, it, it basically triggers your parasympathetic pathway. So you're sort of in rest and digest when your lens is long. As the lion charges close to you and it's going to eat you, your lens, just because the distance changes, your lens changes its focal point, which activates your sympathetic nervous system. So it puts you more in fight or flight until the lion's right on top of you and it's like full fight or flight. Now, this is the way we're wired and it's just, that's just hardware. But now take this into the world where we have technology. Like you have your phone in front of you and, and a politician says something dumb. And, and this politician says something dumb, but 
And, and it may, really makes you feel anxious. But one of the reasons why, and only one of the reasons why, is because that phone is only two feet from your face. And your, your lens in your eye is like, is, is, is like triggered. And so it's like that, 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 that threat is in your house to some degree for, for your eyeball. And these are what, you know, these are what we call evolutionary mismatches, where, where, where we came from and what we are now, our technology is just interfering. And, you know, so many people are talking about um, how, how neuroscientists are like, you know, you say it's like a slot machine, like, like how we're being manipulated by our technology. Um, I, I like that there's this um, social anthropologist from the 1980s named Marshall McLuhan, who said the medium is the message. And what he meant by that, he was talking about television. Um, so the medium is the message. He's also talking about newspapers. Um, but is that, is that it doesn't matter what's on TV. It doesn't matter if it's Fox, if it's CNN, if it's HBO, it doesn't matter. It's not the fact, the content that matters. It's the fact you're watching TV. It's, it, it is the medium of the TV that is, that is the message. Because watching TV um, molds you in a certain way. And, and, and it's the technology around us and the way we use technology ir um, irrespective of what that technology is actually saying. And I think that's a superpower. And he said in the 80s, and we're still just rehashing this now, you know, you know and, and it's been something that we have to think about because that medium, the, the, the actual environment we've created is altering our physiology. Or do you think this is something that, that you maybe will consider doing a book on? Because, you know, it is interesting for me to live with Laird. I always say Laird is not impacted by the white noise. Mm. You know, the way technology is a bit of a car crash that we're all like, ooh, I can't look away. Mm -hmm. and it's so bad for you know, it's all these things. I, I contend with it a lot more than he does. Mm -hmm. And I actually him as a North star to, to realize like, no, this is this, what I'm doing is not, it's not healthy. Yeah. You know, he's not beating me, you know, tongue lashing me going over oh, technology's bad and your blue light and the bullshit. And yeah, everyone's yeah. like, he doesn't do that. He just looks at us like in total disdain that we're on our devices. <laughs> and that says to me in all of my own, because we have that inner compass. Yeah, yeah. You don't really have to say something. You just have to give someone the prompt to be like, come on. Like, you know, do you, you, do you use things to keep, you know, kind of control yourself with your technology? Um, I wish I could say yes, but I think COVID has really put me off my game um, because we are all stuck in our houses. And I, and I find it actually a, a bit of solace now with social media because I find it a way to connect. I mean, look, we're talking over Zoom right now. It wouldn't have been possible without it. So I'm, you know, in some ways, I love the fact that we, I was born in this. I wouldn't want to have been born in Paleolithic time period, right? Do not put me on the plains of Africa fighting lions. I would it would not work. Um, and so I think that being a denizen of the modern world, this technology is part of me. And, and whether I like it or not, it's part of me. But, I, but being mindful of it is important. And, uh, you know, luckily, I have some other practices. I do breath work every morning. I got these kettlebells. I got a sauna. I got, I got things that I do. I got my long bike rides. And I think that keeps me sane. It, it is important to remember to go out and do that, right? It, it's, it's important to remember to go start doing practices because if you only get sucked into the internet, you're gonna go crazy. Uh, yeah. you know, it's a crazy place out there.
Your book's on audio as well, right? Yeah, it's on Audible, it's on ebook, it's on paperback. Uh, and you can get it on scottcarney.com or any of the places you get books. Um, I also have signed copies that I, I send out. Uh, yeah, but it should be, you know, you know how to buy books, right? <laughs> it's out there. And I, I think um, the other thing, if you, I don't know, I just feel like, you know, people, sometimes they get in their certain habits, you know, this whole idea about like, even if like, Hey, you changed a couple of things and your life will be better. They actually like to keep things the same. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You know, the tracks are mm -hmm. laid. Um, and hopefully I, I, my feeling is, is if you can read a book like the wedge, that it's an opportunity to kind of jump out of the, the tracks a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you said something important, which is put these systems in place. It isn't just about like, oh, I'm going to change my mind and I want to do that, but it's mm -hmm. actively sort of figuring out things that you can, you can line up and, um, and that, that becomes the practice. Yeah. You know, it's, and then it's the practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really, I really appreciate it. And, and I appreciate you sharing your personal journey within, uh, you know, the discovery of the book and, and writing the book, because, you know, I'm always interested in, I'm glad that people have all this information but it's how do they then put it in play right. there? Because sometimes actually it's dangerous when you know more. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, oh, I know that. I know what I'm supposed to do. Fuck it. I'm not going to, I'll just do what I want to do. Yeah. And you, you think somehow having the information covers you, um, mm -hmm. but it's like, no, you're not covered. You got to like do it. Yeah. Choose to do it. Yeah. I really appreciate that because it's, um, it's the constant. Yeah, it's a struggle. It's always going to be a struggle. Even if you're an expert, it's going to be a struggle. And, you know, I have a friend, you, you, you know this person, who, who, who wrote a book about, you know, disconnecting from the internet. And they are the most connected person to the internet I know. And uh, I, I don't think that just being an expert is enough, right? I mean, unless the expert acknowledges that, yeah, hey, they're struggling too, and then it's fine. But if we put ourselves on pedestals, and if I said that you or Laird or, or Wim or whoever else is, is the perfect person, that's when we are in grave danger of making huge errors, both isolating that person and, right. and isolating our, and then thinking from ourselves that we can achieve some sort of ideal state that doesn't even exist. And this is actually, to bring it back to the beginning, this is why my student committed suicide. She thought there was some sort of perfection, a bodhisattva, something perfect that, that you could just achieve. And if you could only get that, then you could just stop right there and you'd, you'd stop progressing. But the reality is, is that we are all terribly flawed people who are just trying our best to monkey our way through, the, through life. Really what I wanna to, I'm always interested in talking about, because I feel like then that's the opportunity to really, that's even the starting point, mm -hmm. having a shot. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate that. Well, I thank you. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I learned from you as well so often. So, you know, I hope that we'll get a chance to do this again. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.